John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 318.PR2019, certificate number 29294, the D-Day crosswords. I would like you to write great clues, but if you don't, I know I can write them myself. That, says Shorts, is the fun part, allowing him to find creative ways to torture solvers. I deliberately write clues to mislead you. Take, for instance, any of his recent puzzles. Widely followed court battles are NBA games, and it's sometimes chocolate-coated isn't edible. It's a Labrador. I know from the solved and half-solved crosswords we see littering the bunker here that you are a fan of the art form. You're a, you're a cruciverbalist. Mm. I did not do crosswords growing up. It was not a thing that my family did. You guys did the jumble instead. No, we didn't do the jumble. No one in my family, as far as I could tell, played any of the newspaper games. Although we did read the funnies. Right. We were funnies readers, but all those games on the side just seemed like things for bored people. Well, at the time there was a bridge column, which really did right. confirm this was a thing for bored old people. Do not look over here when Funky Winkerbean is doing something hilarious <laughs> over there. At a certain point in life, and I don't remember why, but I started reading the bridge column, <laughs> not, not having any idea what they were talking about. I don't play bridge. But I read <laughs> for, it. For fun? Well, I read it just because it felt like it might be full of information that I could use later. Hmm, south. You know, like, west. oh, he trumped the, he played for the trump. Three diamonds. Eh? I don't play bridge. Do you play bridge? No, my dad played bridge. But no, I could never figure it out. And, you know, it's a team sport, which I eschew. <laughs> but uh, at a certain point, I don't remember when it was, you know, because my family, we were engaged in adventures. We were out, you know, hunting with the wolves, not sitting around in the You house. guys would not sit around the table playing the game of life or sorry. No, 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 no not okay. at all. But my aunt got addicted to Sudoku. This must be a more recent this vintage. Is, this is pretty recent. Sudoku, not Japanese, by the way. Right. An American game that got a Japanese branding. Well, I, I, apparently a Japanese game puzzle solver found Sudoku, sort of modified it or, or popularized it in Japan. Or appropriated it. Appropriated it. Hello, cultural appropriation. And then sent it back to the United States because then an American discovered it in a Japanese quiz magazine. Wow. So I don't want to, I, I don't want to give away all the tasty tidbits from our Sudoku episode that we'll surely do. <laughs> that, we're just, that we just can't wait to do because of our deep love for Sudoku. But no, I dated a, a young lady who did do crosswords and she made it a thing that we did together, which 
which is a Sunday morning abed, do the New York Times crossword. And you you eschew a team sport, but did that feel, that felt more collaborative? It did because, you know, and I don't typically like that, you know, those kinds of couple activities where you wear matching track suits and sit on the same side of a booth in a diner and finish each other's sentences. It's not I, can't, the, I can't actually think what activities those are. Well, it seems like what, what would be true in your marriage as you get older, right? You guys start having a group think type of thing and she buys your clothes for you. So oh, yeah. they start to match her clothes. You turn into the same organism. It's just like you start to look like your pet. Right. But she liked to sit uh, and do crosswords. And it turned out it worked well because we had different knowledge bases, right? She was able to solve certain questions that I couldn't have and, and vice versa. So it was fun. You know, we would do it as a couple. And then I did get hooked by the sport of crossword puzzle solving. Um, is the sport completing it? Is that, is that the, yeah. the, the rush, the endorphin rush of getting all the squares full? Yeah. And I remember solving a, a Sunday crossword on a flight from Seattle to Los Angeles and being very proud of myself for finishing the crossword in what seemed like a pretty short amount of time, two hours. I felt like, wow, I was a real tough operator. It um, does seem like there's a military thing where you're advancing across the board, you know, or maybe maybe colonizing the West. You're domesticating the crossword with your neatly penciled letters. I start at the bottom. What? I start at the, I start with and the- And now you're here? I start with the last question of the down section and work my way up. This is just sheer bloody mindedness. It's how I do, it's how I solve them. I start at the bottom and it might be related to, it was probably your girlfriend starting at the top. That's right. She started at the top. I started at the bottom and we worked to the center, but I always start at the last question and, and work up, um, which may account for the fact that you come into my house and mock my half solved crossword puzzles lying around. I don't feel I mock them. Well, uh, our listeners aren't privy to our, our local conversations. Where I say things like, hey, nice half-solved crossword, dumbass. <laughs> well, you do say things like, oh, do you like crosswords? Uh, wh how did you bait me? You said, uh, do you like crosswords? Which, which day is your favorite? Or something like that. Well, I think I said, which day can you get to? Because yeah. a lot of people know that there's an escalation in the New York Times crossword. Where it gets harder throughout the day. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I felt like what you were trying to do was commiserate with me and say like, oh, yeah, well, the Saturdays are the hardest and, you know, Thursdays are fun to solve. Fridays can be a little challenging. You know, I thought you were trying to, like, make, like, a friendly crossword puzzle bond. As I 100% was. And, but, but let's hear you misrepresent this. And I said something to that effect. Like, Wednesdays are, you know, pretty fun. Tuesdays and Mondays are too breezy. You, you do those while you're waiting for a phone call. But, like, Thursdays, you know, it starts to really get pretty gritty. And then Fridays, you know, I kind of half the time don't get all the way through. And you got a look on your face that was that far away look, that far away Ken Jennings look where you're like, you were probably solving crosswords while talking to me. And I said, <laughs> I think there was a pause. And I said, are you about to tell me that you can solve any crossword at any time? And you, you got that look that you used to get on Jeopardy sometimes where you were like, well, I mean, I wasn't gonna just say it, but... I guess if you want me to answer in, this question, Alex... Uh, in fact, yes, I can solve any crossword at any time, and I never am stuck. And I was like, oh, you are so much the worst. 
Really? So, so well, think about my side hateful. having to sit through the boring conversation just so I can tell you, <laughs> hey, by the way, I'm really good at crosswords. Think of you trying to, you know, needing to prompt that entire conversation <laughs> in order to listen to it, in order to get that little. No, I am out. interested to hear how far people can get because when your answer is uh, legit, like I can, you know, you can, I can do a Wednesday or a third. I mean, those crosswords are hard. Yeah, thank you. American crosswords are difficult. Thank you for being so. so so, so condescending. condescending to me. Well, and it's true, like British crosswords and particularly like, um, what are they called? The, the, the quizzy ones. They're often the, called cryptics. The cryptics. You know, our, our good friend, friend of the show, Amy Mann, uh, pop songstress. She does cryptics? She loves cryptic crosswords and she likes to solve them as a group. It's a kind of group activity. If, if she gets three or four friends around she'll uh, whip out a cryptic crossword and everybody will sit and, and try and, you know, like group think their way through Man, it. Man, you're really going to impress the future with these wild backstage rock stories tell of our you, era. Tell you what, well, none of us do. I heard that Led Zeppelin <laughs> checked into the Edgewater Inn and all started working on a Sudoku. None of us do drugs anymore, so there's no, we can't just like lay around with each other, getting high and forgetting who we're sleeping with. Now Will Shorts is your dealer. Yeah, it's all like, and, the, and so the British are much more advanced in their crossword puzzle solving. Right. You know, uh, you and I have said that crosswords, uh, American crosswords are hard. The average American cannot just pick up a New York Times crossword and just dig in. It's a, it's a skill. Mm -hmm. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> only the elite, only the like elite. you and me. Yeah, only the real super mensch. But uh, our crosswords pale in comparison to the British. Uh, the crossword's an American invention. It started in, I think, a New York paper, The New York World, maybe, around 1913. But they evolved differently on different sides of the Atlantic. Uh, in America, we developed the grid. We were into squeezing as many words as possible. So you get these tightly packed corners where, uh, you know, you got to get one letter right and then the whole thing opens up because there are hundreds of words packed in there. Whereas the British focus on the clues. There are fewer words in a British crossword, many more black squares, many right. fewer crossings. But the clues are these incredibly elaborate and arcane puzzle games. They are the puzzle, right? None of them are direct clues. They're all poems. Yeah, they all are a little haiku that use wordplay to suggest. This has actually been codified. Um, the British love the diabolical natures of their crosswords so much that constructors or setters, as they would say, they, they call people who make crosswords the setter, uh -huh. like it's a breed of dog. Uh -huh. uh, it's, a, it's like the Romans were doing mosaic floors. It was It, it, it looks simple from afar, but it's they use it for a uh, pub quiz too. Like, oh, who set the quiz tonight? Was it Ruben? You know, the, the idea is you set a game for right. someone else to play. I don't know where this comes from. Maybe I like, like it. maybe like setting up a, 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 an obstacle course. I don't know where the, what the analogy would be. Yeah. Um, and the setters who make these cryptic crosswords always have these one name pseudonyms. Oh, they're like Madonna or Prince. Yes. Except it's more like the Federalist papers. It's more like your, your Publius or Querulus or whatever. And in fact, one of the, uh, most influential early ones was a man who called himself Torquemada oh. after the, the Spanish Inquisitor. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. The idea is he tortures you with his diabolical crossword clues. Of course. And his uh, successor, uh, a man named Derek Somerset McNutt, 
which is the name of every British person. Right, but not actually a, a, a nom de plume. His name really was <laughs> David Somerset. actually was Derek Somerset. McNutt. He chose the name Jimenez for Tor- Torquemada's second in command, I think, mm-hmm. um, some other kind of diabolical Spanish cardinal. Uh, and he was the one who codified the rules of these British cryptic crosswords. Is this cultural appropriation if you use uh, inquisitors from a different nation as your nom de plume? I think so, but keep in mind that they were the oppressors, so maybe it's all right. I, uh, as long as you're not using a murdered Moor or were, were, a, 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 were the English the oppressors of Spain? Oh, oh you're no, talking no, about I'm saying the, the yeah, right, the inquisitors. Right, we're punching up here by right. punching the bishops. Under the name of Jimenez, Mr. McNutt codified the rules of these British crosswords, which are essentially this: the clue is a little sentence, not just a. You know, in, in America, it would be like Australian bird, three letters, and you would write emu. Right, but, but a British, it has to be a complete sentence and grammatically correct. Yes, and half the sentence has to cue the meaning of the word, just like an American crossword. But the other half of the sentence has to suggest the way the word is written, the order, the word itself, the order of the letters through some kind of pun or anagram or riddle. And now is it always that the first half of the sentence, oh, so it can be either way. Right, you need to figure out how to divide the clue. And, uh-huh. and there can be no rules left over. This is what Jimenez was very strict about, or McNutt, as I prefer to call him. Why am I McNutt. giving this guy a cool name? Yeah, no, let's call him McNutt. He's sitting home drinking weak tea and making crosswords. I'm not calling him Jimenez. Like I know, he's, but McNutt Like he's some is, cool uh, leadoff hitter. We don't know culturally whether or not McNutt sounds really cool to a UK listener. Maybe. They might be like, oh, it's just like the Fonz. McNutt. McNutt. Hey, <laughs> are you a moderate rocker, McNutt? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, you know, and so the word could be hidden. It could be an anagram. Here's a sample cryptic crossword clue I grabbed. The clue is Fonda's fourth marriage, a mere flirtation. And so you need to divide the clue into several pieces. Fonda's fourth is the letter D. A word for marriage is Fonda's fourth. The fourth letter of the word Fonda would be the letter Uh, D. Tricky. And a word for marriage is alliance, like an alliance between two people or countries. See, I already got tricked here. You've been tricked twice. So D alliance. D and alliance together, you get the word dalliance. You were going to say deliance. I was going to say. And that would have been hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, like Samson and deliance. Samson and deliance. I can't believe I cut you off. (laughs) Deliance. And dalliance means a mere flirtation. Right. So that's the rest of the crew. So you can com- you can be combining things like that. So now is the word dalliance? Yeah, the answer is dalliance. I see. So that's what you write in the grid. Sometimes it's an anagram. For example, the clue vermin scent is awful. Awful is a word cueing you that something's going to get messed up. Some letters are going to get mixed up. This is a, this is part of the code this, of Yes. This these... is a convention that there will be some word like scrambled or upset or something to let you know that you're going to have to mix up letters. So vermin smells Vermin awful. scent is awful. Oh, vermin scent is awful. So if you do an awful spelling of scent is, you get insects, which means vermin. So the answer is insects or incests, I guess, but that doesn't mean vermin. <sighs> uh, or the word can be hidden. Uh, for example, in a clue like train for Estonia crosses endangered ecosystem. Uh, train for Estonia, the words actually cross a phrase meaning endangered ecosystem, which is rainforest. If you take off the T and the Onia of train for Estonia, you get rainforest. Huh. 
You're uh, already are uh, these you're fun? already bored and annoyed. <laughs> are these fun for people? And you this have... sounds awful. This sounds like the worst way to spend a flight to L.A. Or an, uh, the backstage Amy Mann concert. But uh, you know, I, and and my role in those Amy Mann puzzle solving things is that I sit there dumbfounded for eighty five percent of the conversation, and then every once in a while I get a good. I'll I'll hear something You'll or see your or, spot. Yeah, and I'll lay something out there where it, it feels like I'm really an important member of the team. You're like a jazz musician just waiting for that bass solo. That's right. Just, just hit, waiting just and hit, waiting. The, hit two notes and everybody feels like me sitting there uh, drinking their virgin pina coladas has been worth it. I think it's a way for a certain kind of Mensa person to feel smart because they've internalized a certain number of rules. Like right. like I, I look at the word awful and think, okay, there's got to be an anagram. This thing's seven letters long, so it can't be vermin sent. It can't just be sent. Oh, it can be sent is. So you you, you learn all these cues and rules. Now, is this is this something that you enjoy? Do you sit and do these acrostics? I'll do these on planes because I can often do these without actually writing in the clue. So I don't even need a pen. I can just kind of pull it out and like look at each thing one at a time, trying to unscramble the riddle and then move on. So it's less of a pencil puzzle and more of a brain teaser. Um, right. You get, you, you don't erase because once you get it, you know that that's right, what it it's, is. It's in. It's not like an American puzzle where you might have to be like, this could be turn, but it could be turd. <laughs> Probably not turn. <laughs> what clue would mean both turn be, and turn? It could be turn or it could be torn. Right. I see. And I used to do this with my dad as a kid. So like I internalized the rules as a kid. And he did you do, did you do crosswords as a family? Um, not as a family, but my dad and I would do cryptics together in like games magazine, beloved early eighties puzzle sensation games magazine. You know, games magazine is one of the transmitters or one of the conduits of this Sudoku exchange. It was, um, did they originally do the English one or did yeah, they help it get it back to America? It was discovered by one of the players in games, but I think, um, this is something I was not aware of. And maybe our future listeners are highly aware of it because maybe they're, Foundation documents uh, are are cryptic, cryptic crosswords. Maybe their constitution is something that they need to solve. They just talk like this. Like instead right. of saying hello, they say um, Inferno Circle <laughs> greetings, and you're like Inferno Hell Circle O. Oh, hello, hello, hello to you too. Hello. Uh, but these games magazines. You know, I used to work at a magazine shop, and we sold these magazines. But I never. They didn't appeal to me. Like I, I was reading Model Train or like knitting. Were you looking down magazines. at the uh, at the oddballs buying their word search magazines? No, it just seemed again like the type of thing that you would do in prison or <laughs> like what? Oh, how how does one have so much time uh, that you would need an entire magazine full of this sort of diversion? But we sold them, and and what I didn't realize is that it is enough of a subculture that there are obscure gaming magazines and gaming magazines that are somewhat prized by people if they can even get a hold of them because game designers are working, you know, not everybody can be Will Shorts. There are people toiling in obscurity to stump you. Well, so, and I know a person like this during the years that I was a touring rock artist, we had a fan who was an aspiring crossword puzzle writer. That's how you know you're kind of in a nerdy rock niche. And she would bring crosswords to the shows that were about... <gasps> about the band. About the band. Exciting. And about our world of bands. You know, like, 
Decemberists and so forth. Like there would be clues about all these different bands and she would make them for custom crosswords. Yeah. Make them for these shows that she knew she was going to attend. And you're a man who loves bespoke everything. And you were probably very happy to have a bespoke crossword. I was, it was fascinating. And she would give me a bunch of them for musicians. She knew I knew and say, when you see this person, will you give them this crossword from me? But those were awkward encounters with my, with my peers, you know, at a festival or whatever. The, the second conversation where yeah. you're like, Hey, someone you don't know made you a crossword. Great to see you, bro. Like, how's it going out there? So speaking oh, of crosswords, you know, I've got something for you, man. No, it's not a bag of drugs. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout uh, so th- this was something you and your dad did to bond and so somehow you yeah, baked I- these rules in yourself. Yeah. And I, I'll do it on planes to this day when I have time. I, I do kind of have this kind of puzzle brain. I like the little endorphin kick of solving the little riddle and it'll actually, I have the other thing where it'll nag at me. I will be annoyed if I can't solve the clue or finish the crossword or whatever it is. Um, we talked about this being one of your skills that feels vestigial, but maybe useful at some point in your life, which is this talent for unlocking puzzles like if you were deposited into a real life game of mist, you would be exactly the guy you'd want in your foxhole. Well, like, the, the funny thing is there was an actual application for this skill in the 1940s, you know, in the early days of World War I. The Daily Telegraph in London had a very, it started out as a penny tabloid in the, I think the 1850s. But by the time of World War I, it was kind of a solid center right paper with a respectable middle class audience as it is today, I think, you know, selling a million copies, uh, help cut Churchill install this prime minister by backing him. Harumph, harumph. (laughs) Yeah, that was the sound people would make as they read the telegraph on the train (laughs) or at their club. And these were the type of people that would make a big noise with their newspaper in order to express displeasure to (gasps) someone else sitting next to them on the train. (laughs) You can really hear the (laughs) when it goes through a walrus mustache. (laughs) The crossword at the time was written by a man named Leonard Sidney Daw, and it was not, it had not yet reached the um, elaborate levels of esoterica that I just did. You know, today there's a, the most famous British crossword clue in history, I jotted this down, goes like this, poetical scene with surprisingly chaste Lord Archer vegetating. And this was hilarious to people at the time that Lord Archer, Jeffrey Archer, the novelist, was having some kind of prostitution scandal. Oh, I am rolling. You can see why this is remembered as the best British crossword clue ever. Belly laughs. And I probably, you've probably already figured this out, you know, super advanced future listeners with your giant cranium. But you anagram chaste Lord Archer vegetating 
as per the word surprisingly, and it gives you the old vicarage Grantchester, which means poetical scene, because of course, I don't have to tell you this, John, there's a Rupert Brooke poem called the old vicarage Grantchester. Right. So this is, this is the kind of devilishly complicated clue that British crossword solvers live for. And this is a, a very similar, or I mean, it, it's of the school of uh, James Joyce, right? Where, where the writing is not just at face value, but there's, there are so many illusions, literary illusions that it's impossible to translate yes. these works. Two into. languages are being spoken at once. Form and content are interchangeable. It's a very kind of modern, postmodern even art form where the words mean something, but they actually are talking about the form as well. And at this time in the 40s, they had not yet reached that level. There were still some riddles and some anagrams in the clues that were a little more elusive and elusive than what an American crossword reader would be getting. The American crossword fad was mostly built on, you know, South American berry, uh, five letters, and you'd have to call your librarian Acacia. and be like, what's the name of a South American berry? And they would be very obscure words, and libraries would actually say, no, we're shutting down our phone lines, you weirdos. Well, and how is that word actually pronounced? It's not acacia. Oh, like the, uh, it's a, a, a chi, a sai? A sai. The C has a thing under it, right? Yeah, I get yelled at even by people in real life about my mispronunciation of that berry. Because you have more smoothie drinking friends. I do. Your, your post-abuse uh, music right. friends are when, all drinking well, acai smoothies now. When hot, hot yoga gets out, they all flood out onto the playground, and I get mercilessly teased. Uh, so at the time, there were some tricky clues, but it was also just knowing... Special things. Yes, specialized thing, and being able to see a couple letters and guess the rest of the word, I see. And there were some letters to the Telegraph saying that their crossword was too easy. And uh, a, Brit a London club called the Eccentric Club, which is, I hope, exactly what you imagine. You know, a bunch of Sherlock Holmes bureaucrats sitting around silently reading papers. We could, we could describe Omnibus that way. That's what, that's what we aspire to. It's a Christian science reading room, but actually with people there. They uh, had decided to hold a contest where people could come and see who could actually solve one of these telegraph contests in five minutes, I think. Oh. No, I think it was a little longer. I think you had 10 or 15 minutes. And as people had been bragging, it was so easy to do. And in fact, only five or six people could do it. And one did not even get the correct solution. Uh, so the eccentric club paid out their hundred pound prize to whoever had been able to solve the puzzle. But the British government took note of this, that oh. there was an elite group of British subjects who could sniff out these difficult solutions. Oh, is this a Benchley Park situation? Exactly. They started interviewing them to hire them at Bletchley Park, which was the top secret British code-breaking a state outside of London that ended up winning the war when they cracked Hitler's Enigma code. Of course. I say Hitler's like he was a, like he was the puzzle master. Like he's Will Shorts designing <laughs> ever more complicated codes for his uh, soldiers to use. Do we know it wasn't Hitler? <laughs> you know, he had a real hands-on approach. He probably had lots of free time, yeah. right? Yeah. Just sitting, sitting there with his dog and Ava, you know, doing word searches and acrostics You know, when, you, acrostics oh, and when you're missing a testicle, it does give you extra... <laughs> I mean, it, you have that much less to think about. It's a lot of sublimated frustration <laughs> that you have to pour into crosswords. Uh, yeah, so the British government found that the skill set of, you know, seeing half of a word and being able to deduce the rest of it, or in particular, the psychoanalysis of being able to figure out what the puzzle setter had in mind, right. were both invaluable skills for a code breaker. Now, you know, this is something similar is happening in British law enforcement now. Is that right? Which is that they realize that there is a certain class of people that have the ability to recognize faces. Super recognizers. Super recognizers. We should do a show about super recognizers. And so they have, they have started to seek these people out and employ them as special squads 
because there's so much closed circuit television in the United Kingdom. They have CCTV cameras everywhere. And so anytime there's a crime committed, there will be footage sometimes from multiple uh, vantage points. And so they have these super recognizers that are scanning all this video footage looking for criminals. And some of them are really good, like pick people out of a crowd and say, oh, that's the same guy that was at that grocery store robbery. Well, it's so sad that a country with this legendary tradition of outlaws, you know, Robin Hood and all the great highwaymen, and now you don't have a chance. Right. You're on camera all the time. You can't do your cool crimes anymore. Super tasters are walking through with their tongues out, walking <laughs> through train stations going, Licking mm, crime scenes. Mm. This tastes like a felony. Uh, so this was the last time that you could get a job for being good at a crossword, I think. This has probably never happened again in history. And this is circa? Uh, early days of the war, early 40s. I think 1942 was the one they had the they had the contest and ended up getting a bunch of people hired to break Nazi codes. Towards the end of the war, however, crosswords come again into the story of the Allied effort in a very different and maybe more mysterious and controversial way. The turning point of the war, one could say, was the D-Day invasion of June 1944. Would you say that, John? You're a as a as a war strategist. Could you take the next 40 minutes of the podcast just to tell us boring stuff about D-Day? Uh, you know, it depends. Uh... A lot of things in World War II history depend on your perspective. And there is a very, I think, even more convincing argument that the Germans Stalingrad, crashing up Stalingrad? against Stalingrad mm. and not being able to make it over the wall was the turning point. But, you know, uh, I think among we World War II scholars, the invasion of Russia was the turning point in the war. There was no possible route to victory for Hitler from the day he stepped into the Ukraine. We could have stood into down? Into Ukraine, I'm sorry. We were planting gardens and, and salvaging tires for nothing? We just could have just sat and waited for I mean, it Hitler was, to beat himself bloody on, <laughs> on the Russian front? It was a matter of, you know, do you want the war to be 10 years long or five years long? Mm. But yeah, once he once he made that fateful error, it was just a matter of time because the Germans could not acquire the natural resources necessary to wage a war on that scale. But the, in the West, certainly from our standpoint, D-Day was the sure. turning point. And D-Day would not have been possible without Hitler's forces being divided and the, the disaster at Stalingrad. Well, maybe possible, although there's the, the famous, the events of Dieppe uh, in the earlier part of the war in 1942, where the British and Canadians schemed to invade France for a day. The whole project was all we need to do is get there. Was it like a bachelorette party? Like, we're just going to go over the day. It's Yeah, right. Like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in Dieppe <laughs> stays in Dieppe. They were they were just going to see if they could invade, that capture this town and hold it. The plan was to hold it for the length of two tides. Because back then in the 40s, we all told time in number of tides. That's right. It was... It you was, wouldn't uh, say it's 930. You would say, oh, it's six hours past... Uh, ebb tide or whatever. Yeah, it was seven full moons or or 14 tides. That's probably true again in the future. If, if our semi-aquatic audience may indeed use a lunar clock and calendar. I bought a clock the other day because I realized the last time I broke my phone, I had no way of waking up in the morning because I had eliminated all alarm clocks from my life and my phone just functions as my calendar and my clock. I broke it and I, I needed to be up in the morning. I couldn't, there wasn't a way so I went to a thrift store and I bought a clock, like a wind-up clock. I, I, none of us remember this, but that thing sits in any room of my house and I can hear it. And it's a beautiful sound, but my goodness, we really lived a different lifestyle. 
I think you just have to, you have to just have a terrible two weeks until you get used to it. And then it just fades into the background of your life. Right. right? It becomes soothing. As long as you kind of have a sleepless two weeks. So are you, are you going to push through? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> but the invasion of Dieppe, there is a theory that the entire reason they mounted it was to get some spies on shore, some spies under the direction of Ian Fleming. Wow. Who were going to raid the headquarters and steal an Enigma machine. The, uh, the classic four wheel Enigma machine. This, this is not a, this theory hasn't been proved and it's also somewhat dubious. And also you just made it up. But the idea was that they would seize this port and prove that you could invade France. Because Germany had what they called the Atlantic wall right. from Portugal all the way to the fjords of Norway. You know, Europe was an impregnable bastion. Fortress Europe is right. Uh, and the invasion of Dieppe was a miserable failure at least half of the invaders were machine gunned to death on the beaches and uh, no toehold no to, no was gained. No toehold was gained. That's a good... Is that a crossword clue? That's a good crossword clue. In the aftermath of the Dieppe invasion, British intelligence discovered that a Daily Telegraph crossword had contained the word Dieppe. Uh, a word that, you know, in the week prior to the invasion, a word that had never appeared before and certain elements, certain agents started to wonder if that could have been some kind of signal to the, oh. to the enemies, to the Axis, you know, passing information via the crossword. Because it did seem, the invasion failed in a way that seemed like the Germans had advanced knowledge. Hmm. So they're watching the crosswords is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. The D-Day invasion two years later is a massive undertaking. 5,000 ships, 156,000 men had to get across the channel to Normandy. And all very, very secretively, um, to the degree that there was a whole counterintelligence operation, I guess, devoted to making the Nazis think that the landing was going to be elsewhere, maybe in Calais. Um, they assumed it would be Calais. It's the shortest distance across. I love how you... Because Nazis are lazy. Yeah, well, they assume the Brits are lazy. They, they have a whole intelligence arm studying the crosswords, for goodness sakes. <laughs> I like how you are describing D-Day to our future listeners as though they never heard of it. They have not. D-Day, it was an amazing invasion. They have not. They do not know it's the biggest amphibious landing of our era. Of our era, right. Maybe they've seen bigger uh, interplanetary invasions. Well, almost certainly they are amphibians. <laughs> yeah. So they're like, the biggest amphibious landing, it's every Monday morning. Don't call the allies <laughs> amphibious. That's our word for us. <laughs> Uh, I think they even planted false clues, like as if they were ordering a bunch of skis and stuff to think that maybe it was going to come via Scandinavia. Yes, the old ski ruse. <laughs> the old ski <laughs> we called it. And uh, so a mammoth operation, months and months of planning. And on May 2nd, 1944, just a, a, a month before D-Day, D minus 30 something days, in the Telegraph crossword, the word Utah appears, oh. clued as one of the U.S. And that's not so odd. Utah's the kind of word that appears in crosswords a lot. Not a lot of four-letter words start with U. It's got a vowel-consonant-vowel-consonant pattern that you yeah. need a lot. It's got, it's got three vowels, which is nice. It actually does not. <laughs> yeah, Utah. Haven't you, haven't you ever spelled Utah? U-T-A-A-H. It's a Star Wars character. U-T-A-U. Utah. Uh, and looking back, apparently, the MI5 agent who took notice of this, uh, sorry, I guess I should say, Utah, the name for one of the five, the code name for one of the five beaches That's in Normandy right. on which the invasion was going to take place. A very small number of people knew where these beaches were going to be, but the code words were getting to be used. And the code word gives no information to the Germans. 
No, they might think that the Mormons are going to invade. <laughs> That's right. And that would be terrifying. There's someone knocking on our door. <laughs> Pretend you're not home, Fritz. Hi. Well, have you got a moment? <laughs> We've got a short message about family. Surrender to us. <laughs> And so the uh, intelligence agent, noticing the word Utah's in the crossword, thinks that's a code word for an yeah. upcoming operation nobody is supposed to know about. Right. Looks, but it's common in crosswords, so sure. let's let it ride. Right. Uh, but they look back at some previous Utah crosswords, and I think they note that other words have appeared in April, uh, words like gold, sword, and Juno. Also code words. Also beaches on which the, uh, the not yet official landing is going to take place. Three weeks later, on May 22nd, the word Omaha appears oh in a telegraph crossword by the same man, Leonard Sidney Daw, and all hell starts to break loose yes. at MI5. This starts to, this is too much to be a coincidence. Omaha Beach is, of course, the fifth of the beaches. Now all five have appeared. They're going to start wondering what is being communicated in the crossword. Five days later, the word Overlord appears oh, in the crossword. Oh, this is the name of the entire operation. That's the whole thing. The whole thing's been blown. Operation Overlord. If you're a Nazi uh, spy who knows everything about the operation except the code name, <laughs> you now have all the pieces. Yeah, no, this is the crazy thing about espionage, right? That, that little teeny pieces of information uh, take on all this added significance, but there's no way that any of this would be helpful unless the crosswords were full of other clues that described like... Well, crosswords are always full of clues, John. Right, I'm sorry. But you but mean specifically... Unless, unless, clues unless, for your Nazi spy master. Unless there were two ways to solve it. You know, one was the word popsicle, and the other were the latitude and longitude and date of the landings. Dear Adolf. <laughs> it was very confusing when all the puzzles began. Dear Adolf. <laughs> Present for Adolf. Well, you know, it's, al it's always central to these... Um, to military propaganda that the tiniest clues, you know, that loose lips can sink ships just right. by telling your girlfriend to pack you a warm coat or that you won't be able to, to uh, write her on weekends anymore right. might be the last clue that or the enemy needs. We'd like to buy 50,000 pairs of skis. <laughs> For just a, a tiny thing like <laughs> mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. Hard to say. But it, even in a case like that, it is hard to, to imagine how just knowing these code names would be helpful at all. And but yet, it still is spooky. It's spooky and it keeps being spooky. Three days later, the word mulberry appears in the crossword. Overlord and mulberry, not common crosswordies. No. Mulberry was the name of the portable harbors that the British Navy had invented. It, you know, the problem with landing on a sandy beach is you've got these giant troop transports that need uh, deep waters. All the ports are very heavily guarded. So you actually bring in your own makeshift harbors that the boats can dock at and unload. So these giant floating platforms of some kind. You know, this accounts for the subsequent invasion of France, which people do not talk about, uh, that came almost immediately after the D-Day uh, landings. You're like an amphibious landing hipster. Uh, you like the lesser right. known amphibious landings. <laughs> that's right. I, the uh, the D-Day landing, sure, if that's what you're into. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I started there too. When I was 10. <laughs> but it was later when they realized, um, well, you you don't really have very good ports there. And if you're going to offload an invasion force that's going to make it all the way to Germany, you're going to need... So many tanks and hundreds it. of thousands of people. That's right. All those, uh, those you know, working ports that have not been destroyed in, in uh, bombing campaigns and so forth. So there was a... Um, there was a subsequent landing in the in the Mediterranean where uh, they oh, opened a second front. In southern France. Yeah, that's right. 
It would be nice to imagine some Ian Fleming type ducking around the rooftops of Monte Carlo like one of your gentleman jewel thieves mm-hmm. that we've described before. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, you don't want to be on the Atlantic coast. You don't want to be hanging around La Havre. No, it's so, it's so cold and wavy up there. But by this point, we have the Enigma machine, right? So we're, we don't need Ian Fleming anymore. He, we can drop him into Switzerland. We have the Enigma, but the Nazis have the telegraph crossword. Uh, Mulberry, by the way, is is clued like a little riddle. This bush is a center of nursery revolutions. Uh, Referring to the nursery rhyme of here we go around the mulberry bush. Right. Uh, As you knew. Two two days later, the word Neptune appears. This is also the codename for the naval part of the operation. Right. Um, It's clued as Britannia and he hold to the same thing, a reference to the goddess Britannia who holds a trident. So these were the kind of clues that were common in British crosswords at the time. Not the straightforward American ones, but not yet these very strict Jimenez type. Uh, Jose Jimenez. Did, did the word dragoon appear at any point? Is dragoon a D-Day code word? Uh, well, it was the oper- the name of the operation of the French invasion of, uh, or the second invasion in the Mediterranean. Operation ah, Dragoon. It sounds like it was supposed to be dragon, which would have been cool. Yeah. But then somebody kind of messed it up. Some French person. It was probably de Gaulle. Le dragoon? Le dragoon. That is actually the French word for dragon, I think. That happened, uh, that, uh, that invasion happened in August. And so at this point, security alert is, you know, bells are going off probably literally at British intelligence. This is now at least five words that have appeared in the crossword just in the last couple of weeks for an invasion that's just two or three days away. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So what happens? They can't let this sleeping crossword lie. How is this center-right Churchillian newspaper an arm of apparently German intelligence. Right. Uh, the editor is William Barry, and he's above suspicion. He is uh, f- actually uh, a Churchill friend. He was a min- the minister of information briefly during the war. He's one of their guys. But no one is above d- suspicion. Oh, you're blaming William Barry, the first uh, Viscount of whatever. Well, let's hear about it. Let's hear what really happened. Well, when they go to William Barry, he explains that freelancers do the crosswords, that, uh-huh. the, that the editor-in-chief does not <laughs> does not choose the words for the crossword every day. So you're saying that Hitler wasn't designing the Enigma <laughs> machines. Uh, William Barry sells out Leonard Sidney Daw. Um, he's a former British footballer, uh, amateur football, football soccer player for Southampton, mm-hmm. actually played on the British national amateur team. He was on the Olympic team in, I think, 1912 or 16, although he didn't end up playing. He sat on the bench. Um, he wore his glasses on the pitch just as an indication of of what it was like to be a, a high-level athlete. A more gentlemanly in the 1910s, sport. Right? It's like the, those pictures of people in the Tour de France uh, who are, or the Tour de France, 
who are smoking cigarettes as they as they ride their bikes. <laughs> he would break his lenses all the time. I think we very quickly see why you're not supposed to wear your glasses while playing a game where you hit the ball with your head all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had later become a teacher later in life and was the headmaster of the Strand School in London. Mm-hmm. And wrote the uh, with another with another co- a colleague wrote the uh, Telegraph crossword almost every day. So it seems like a nice life to be a headmaster and do the daily crossword. You get to yell at your your kids and then you go back to your little private room you get the prefects to yell for you you go back to your private room and write the next day's crossword Ugh, i bet he had a valet with a biscuit yeah Yeah. he had his batman no wait only military people had batman yeah no it would be a i think they would pronounce it valet a valet parks your car a valet valet. takes your uh, pince nez so you don't uh break it on the soccer field yeah right he ties your white tie before you go ride the tour de france france <laughs> You're really afraid that somebody's going to say, <laughs> "Stop saying Tour de France." <laughs> it is not C; it's we. So the uh, the Strand School is actually located outside of London to a village called Effingham in Surrey, uh, because children were being taken out of London because of the Blitz. Right. And one day uh, in 1942, just with two or three days to go before the invasion, a car pulls up at the Strand School, and the students watch in horror as their headmaster is arrested. <sighs> We were astonished at the thought that Mr. Daw was a traitor, said one of the students. He was our headmaster. He was a member of the local golf club. Come on, talk about above reproach. <laughs> I, love, I love this British <laughs> attitude to warfare in the 1940s. He was a member of the local golf club. How could he? I must protest in the most strenuous fashion, sir. I say. His handicap is uh, a mere eight. Over. I don't know how golf <laughs> handicaps actually work. Uh, eight over. Yeah. (laughs) So Dawes arrested. His brother-in-law is interrogated. Uh, His brother-in-law works at the Admiralty. So this is maybe suspicious. Maybe this is where the intel is coming from. Right. His uh, collaborator, not his collaborator, that's a little loaded. His puzzle-setting colleague who works in London is also interrogated. And he is held for hours as they try to pummel information out of him as to how he knows all the D-Day code words. And he insists it's all a coincidence. They turned me inside out, he later said, but they eventually decided not to shoot me after all. And there's really nothing they can say. He protests that this is all a coincidence, but it's a remarkable one. Yeah. The idea that, uh, you know, the, the London, the Telegraph paper in this two or three week span only contains a few hundred words. There's probably only a, a, maybe a dozen or two words that are D-Day code words. Well, there are a lot more than a hundred words in the paper. But you're talking about the crossword. In the crossword. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> As of, so of the hundreds of words they've used, five are among the, what, dozen or so? Right. That are D-Day code words. Uh, someone, uh, a modern person has c- calculated the odds of that happening as being somewhere on the order of one in 10 to the 30th power against. Wow. So, but imagine, imagine you're a spy catcher and you have this person sitting here in a, in a windowless room tied to a wooden chair. He's not tied. He's drinking tea and eating biscuits. <laughs> and you're saying, you're saying, okay, golf pro, what's the key? What's the secret? And, and he's denying it, of course. but. How could you possibly set him free? It's just too, it's too tantalizing. Like, how do you unlock this? This is the the puzzle clue. He's the enigma machine. Yeah. In the end, they feel they cannot hold him. Even with war powers, uh, he convinces them that it's all a shocking coincidence. Right. Stalin would have drowned him in a 50-gallon drum. Oh, sure. I mean, Stalin, when he sees the word Utah... That's it. He immediately just shoots the guy in the but head. But this is the United Kingdom and people have rights. We have rule of law. We have the Magna Carta and whatnot. So what they do is they say he can't set the crossword anymore. Oh. He's banned. He's, okay. got, he's on a three-day ban. Uh-huh. After June 6th or whatever, <laughs> you can totally do this. We're not going to say why. Yeah. 
But he must convince them just in some way that, hey, I'm a crossword guy. Let me just tell you, we use a lot of random words. You're going right. to take my word for it. This is, it's odd, but it's bound to happen. And there the matter sat. Uh, the D-Day invasion, spoiler warning for the future, mm. was a success. It Yay. was not like Dieppe. Perhaps, yeah. the, perhaps his interrogators were able to see that uh, they found it convincing that what possible good could be done by releasing these code words. Right. The, me the meanings are what's important. You know, presumably the reason there are code words is because the Nazis may have the code words, but not know what Neptune is or where Juno is. Right. They're not saying we're invading in, in Brittany. We know there's it's an invasion, the <laughs> but what are the code words for it? Um, how interesting. He goes to his grave in 1963, still con protesting his innocence. Protesting that this was an amazing coincidence. Which, is, which it was. Well, in 1984... Britain celebrates, we all celebrate, the 40th anniversary of D-Day. I, I say I we all, unless you're a Nazi war criminal I, living in the jungles of Paraguay. I know, then I, know I celebrated it. And as part of the newspaper package uh, on this, they covered the odd case of the D-Day crosswords, which is now public knowledge. And some of the more conservative British papers even go back to look at their crosswords of the 80s to make sure that they can say that no words from the Falklands War Right. Could have been leaked to Argentina in the in the mirrors crossword. Right, because uh, this remains an unsolved mystery. Right, so they want to be, be sure, and it's a ridiculous idea to me. The idea that in the early eighties Argentina would have been solving the uh, the crossword in the Observer every day, so that they can get necessary intelligence to defeat. I mean, it's still sort of a ridiculous idea that the that Argentina and the United Kingdom fought a war over the Falkland Islands. <laughs> to begin with, I have actually been to Ushuaia, the city on Tierra del Fuego that is the capital of the province where the Falklands would be a part of if this were actually geopolitical reality and not Argentine political fantasy. Because you were taking a boat to Antarctica. That's where one departs to Antarctica. It's the, right. it's the Dover to Calais. It's the closest connection between a place that is not Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula, which reaches up towards South America. Right. And what you'll find in the city of Ushuaia is that, well, first of all, there's tons of Antarctic heading tourists, but also there is tons of Falkland pride. The outline of the Falkland Islands appears under every flagpole oh. and on every veteran's memorial um, this because is, this is their great white whale. This is their troubles. Exactly. Yeah. This is the, the unspeakable slight that they will not forget, that it's closer to them, but it's not theirs and what the hell. Uh, is, is, um, I know, boy, I, I you know, uh, that's how I feel about Jamaica, but I'm not like, you know, sure. New Jersey feels it. that way about Staten Island, but, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not seizing it under arms. Uh, anyway, at the time of this great resurgence of interest in D-Day, a student of Leonard Sidney Daw named Ronald French comes forward. Oh, is that a coincidence that his name is French? Some kind of traitor. Wait a minute. He's very suspicious. He's actually related to the French's mustard fortune. Good, good, uh, good thing his name wasn't Dragoon. Good thing his name wasn't like Roland German. Uh, and he said that... Wait for it. Two things. First of all, that Leonard Sidney Da did not write the crossword every day. <gasps> this is not just an espionage scandal. It's a cruciverbalism scandal. Oh my goodness. That he would just leave blank grids around his office and he would have some of the older boys come in and the older boys. Well, this normally this would not be a good British boarding school story, but this, this one's a little harmless. Uh -huh. He would have them fill in the grids with whatever words they found interesting and could make cross. And then he would write the clues and send it into the telegraph. Oh, well that's smart. I mean, that's better than it's child I, labor. Yeah. But I mean, I thought that they were also going to be 
You thought there was they, gonna, they were going to be whipped with a yardstick while they were doing something it. untoward was going to happen. So, so the kids would just come in and and just make up words and fill them in, yes. and then he would make he would it add the smart clue. with the clues. He would add the clues. Yes, he he thought of this as the busy work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he was still doing awful things to them. Just you know, you wouldn't mention that because that was part of going to British boarding school in the 40s. Sure, you can't have any uh, you can't have any pudding if you don't eat your meat. <laughs> and Roland French said further that. Two miles away from Effingham in the villages of Great Bookham and West Horsley, respectively, there were troops quartered, Canadian regiments with hilarious Canadian names like the 4th Medium Regiment Royal Canadian Artillery 1st Battalion Camerons of Ottawa Uh or the Canadian West Nova Scotia Regiment. Uh Uh, These are some of the same regiments that probably were massacred at Dieppe. Yes, these are the the few survivors. They're getting their get back now. Uh, They are... uh, Bivouacked? You wouldn't say bivouacked. They're being quartered in yeah. these British villages and probably, you know, tormenting the local barmaids at the pub. Sure. And uh, in their Canadian way. The local. So, <laughs> sorry. Drop sorry. some peanuts. Didn't mean eh? to pinch you there, eh? <laughs> and Roland Ronald and his friends would uh, hang out with these guys and sort of become mascots. They loved the idea of hanging out with soldiers, of course, because they're 14 year old boys. Right. And they would essentially become camp mascots, spending evenings and weekends there. And they would start also, to hear. Also getting beaten with the with yardsticks, but in a different fashion. They found something less brutal than a British boarding school of the 40s, the <laughs> army. The military camp. <laughs> and they said that they would just hear scuttlebutt and that the, the men they were hanging out with would uh, just routinely be saying words like overlord and sure, mulberry. rhubarb, rhubarb, Utah, rhubarb, rhubarb, gold. And they wouldn't know what this meant, but they thought these were funny sounding words and clearly meaningful to the soldiers. So when they were asked to produce random words for Mr. Leonard Sidney Daw, they would be like, uh, Overlord or uh, Neptune. That's what uh, Billy was saying at camp today. So really loose lips resulted in this, but did, but sank no ships. Yes, there were loose lips, but no uh, loose, no ears, no Nazi ears listening to them because right. they were just random words appearing in a crossword and nobody was, no Nazi spy master was saying, I will look at the crossword today and see which words may be called names. You're so good at that. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I'm just doing the guy with the glasses <laughs> who gets his hand scarred up in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> but do we believe this? this? To me, this sounds very much like a boy named Ronald inserting himself into history 40 years later because he sees an opening. So there is no independent confirmation of this because everyone else is dead? Everyone else is dead. And no other schoolboys came forward and said, yes, that's what happened. I also was there. And do we believe that in May 1944, at a time when presumably any men who had any maps or any real information about codenames would have been sealed in their encampments? Sure, this wasn't, they, they weren't walking around like soldiers tense, just going like, all right, everyone come around. The code names are, Ooh, let's come, let's learn about operation Juno. Eh? It's going to be a good one. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. You, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been discussing this openly. Doesn't that seem odd to it you? Does. So, you know, he would have had to be talking to somebody with actual intelligence, you know, an officer field grade or above. And that does not sound super likely to me. Right. So is there still, a, is this still a mystery? Are you, are you advancing this as like, Maybe there there is some Kim Philby type character that will be revealed in time. In our day, this is still an unsolved mystery. And maybe somebody's chest in somebody's attic contains the evidence that somebody in the crossword chain was trying to sneak signals to somebody. Well, because all this will out, right? We, there are no Nazi files that haven't been examined by someone. There aren't, I mean, how would this be kept secret? 
if there had been a, if there was an operation that involved the crosswords. Yeah, someday some... It leaked. It would have. Some Hydra higher up is going to say what actually happened, if indeed there was a story to tell. I'm kind of of the opinion that it was just a coincidence. Wow. 10 to the 30th power. Maybe that's a high estimate. But just, you know, in in a world full of uh, incident, the weirdest thing would be if there were no coincidences, right? And when you think about some of the crazy things that have happened, I remember as a kid, Ripley's Believe It or Not would always have these stories of amazing coincidences, you know, two, two planes crash and the pilots have the same name and birthday. Or uh, my favorite one was a case of two twins in Bermuda, on the streets of Bermuda run down exactly one year apart on the same street by a taxi cab. Uh, Perhaps that's not so This was your crazy. favorite story? Oh, man, I can't oh, get enough of, I love of Bermudan kids getting run over. Taxi accidents. Well, the funny thing about this story is it turns out it was the same taxi driver on both cases in the same cab carrying the same passenger. Oh. And exactly a year later, he runs over the twin brother of the kid he killed a year ago. Come on. God is playing tricks now. And it's awful if, you're, if, you know, if you think of it from the point of view of either the family or the cab driver or the passenger. There are no winners here. Except for us looking at it as just a, another sign of the weird carnival of God playing dice with the universe. I mean, none of us can ever be that cab driver or that passenger jumping out, seeing the kid and going, wait a minute. What are the odds? Whoa, 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 whoa. We already killed this kid. Officer, here's the thing. <laughs> what are the odds? Yeah, that is not a defense. So there, maybe there are stranger things in heaven and earth that are dwell, uh, dreamt of in our philosophy and... Some of them are weird coincidences, and the D-Day crosswords were one of them. What's your theory? Well, I'm never going to look at the crosswords the same way again. And that concludes the D-Day crosswords. Entry 318.PR2019. Certificate 29294 in the Omnibus. Listeners, in the unlikely event that social media still exists, or for that matter, crosswords still exists, still exist in Cross, your era. Crosswords as, a, as an aggregate noun. Right. Crosswords still exists. Crosswords still exist. The concept of crosswords. Right. Um, uh, it's unlikely. Although, maybe as amphibians, you have a different way of playing word games. Surely word games will exist as long as words. Puzzles are certainly on the rise in our era. Although I don't, you know, it's a a certain kind of intelligence that wants to game with words, that sees sees that as a natural terrain for games, right? You could be verbal, but not play. And it's our sense of play rather than something intrinsic to... um, to words or yeah. it's creative people like Amy Mann or uh, Stephen Sondheim was yeah. a big writer of cryptic crosswords and would make his friends all, all play them at his house. Do you feel that solving them is creative? Uh, solving them is more, I mean, if it's anything, it's psychoanalysis. You feel like you're getting into the head of the solver. Right. So there is a, a level of espionage, but it's a real kind of brain game. Well, if you want to send us puzzles, uh, address them to Ken. I will solve all your personalized crosswords that you can somehow get across the chronological gap. Yeah, and his condescension will barely be detectable to you unless you are highly attuned to detecting condescension from your peers. We will send them back to you, and if they are done in pen, it's me. And if they are covered in pencil and flop sweat, they are by John. Uh, He can be found at Ken Jennings 
I am at John Roderick uh, at uh, most all social media platforms. Um, I'm actually at John Roderick at Snapchat, but you can send stuff to that all day long and I'll never see it uh, because I broke up with that girl. <laughs> I'm also on Instagram. Ken is there too, but he never posts anything. He just lurks. I broke up with the girl of Instagram. Of Instagram. Uh, you can email, at, uh, email us and please do at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Also, if you are on Facebook, there's a very lively and fun community of uh, people on Facebook called the Futurelings, the Omnibus Futurelings on Facebook. Listeners from our vantage point here in the distant past, puzzling away at our crosswords, we have no idea how long this civilization is going to survive. We hope and pray that we have a while, that the hangman's noose will not drop in our lifetimes. Inshallah. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, Maybe our final word to you. John's half-finished crosswords will be half-finished forever. <laughs> but if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.